Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money, called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So our passage this morning is one of those that you read and you immediately um, think of those people who describe Jesus as the hippie Jesus, who is just love and bunnies and walking through the flowers. And then you think, Well, when I read Luke 19, I don't really see a warm, fuzzy description of Jesus. This teaching that he has here this morning does not necessarily leave you with a lot of, um, you know, warm, gushy feelings. Jesus comes along, you know, you've all probably experienced and heard people talk about, well, I I just, I'm a red letter Christian, they might say. I just kind of follow the ethics of Jesus. We love the Sermon on the Mount about being nice to your neighbor and, and do, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you and kind of uh, golden rule Christianity. And you think, okay, I, I'm Jesus, that is a part of Jesus' teaching, but these are red letters as well. They, they, and, and technically, all of Scripture is breathed out by God, is the Word of God, is Word from Jesus. But Here we have, if that's your version of Jesus, you have to do something with this parable of the ten minas in this this 
narrative, this parable from Jesus, because you get very severe words from Jesus in this parable. What do you do with this? There aren't many warm fuzzies. There, there, there's some good news in here when we talk about the rewards of the faithful. But the lion's share that this is talking about is this judgment that is coming. Now, this parable is often confused with the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where, you know, they have Jesus gives, the king gives uh, ten talents to one, five talents to another, and they go and they, they make a profit with their, with their talents. They sound a lot alike. The themes to them are, are very similar, but there's enough difference that you can tell they're not the same story. They, each, each servant here, each slave, doulos, servant here is given just one mina, which is essentially like three months worth of wages, whereas a talent is a, is a large, impressive amount of money. Jesus is, as he's going along, and you, you see this all throughout his ministry, where the Gospels will record kind of the same saying, but it's a little different. And many people will you know, say, well, this, the Bible has got contradictions or something along those lines. But the reality is, Jesus, I'm sure, as he's making this march into Jerusalem and is ramping up, he knows the passion event, his crucifixion is coming. He's teaching on these certain themes multiple times. And so you can get this, is, this teaching comes as he's leaving Jericho, getting ready to go into Jerusalem. Whereas the parable of the talents, he's already entered into Jerusalem and kind of returns to this idea of, of what's going to happen to this king. And the parable, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward story, isn't it? Uh, what, what's going on? This nobleman goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. The point of the parable, I mean, we, we get kind of the main idea of why Jesus shares this. Right here in verse 11, these disciples assume the kingdom is coming very soon. They're, they're expecting Jesus to march into Jerusalem, kick out the Roman authorities supernaturally or however he's going to do it, get rid of all these authorities, and they're going to have their Jewish nation back. That's what they're, that's what they're looking for. They're anticipating the kingdom of God to appear immediately. So Jesus tells this parable. It's not going to come immediately. The nobleman, the king, is going to go away for a while to receive his kingdom and then he's going to return. Now, we, if you read the commentaries, you, you find out, and you don't have to know this information, but some of you might be interested. There, parables usually have a, a, like a real life, like they'll be agricultural or you, about losing something. Parables will have a real life re- relatable story. And this, is, this one is no different. That there's a Herod, whenever he dies, gives away uh, to three of his sons different sections of his kingdom. And one of these kings, Archelaus, is given kingship over Jerusalem. And the way that you governed back in those days wasn't um, by going around door knocking and trying to be nice to everybody and, and win support. The way that you ruled back then was you taught people to fear you. And so Archelaus had 3,000 Jews slaughtered. To, let, to leave a mark, to let them know I'm the guy in charge. Well, the way you became king back then is they were, they were kings under a greater king. They were kings under the ruler that was in Rome, under the Caesar. And so what, what each one of these three kings, Archelaus being one of them, would have to do is they'd travel to Rome 
for Caesar to pronounce on them that they were king to then come back and actually be king. And what happened, this Archelaus had slaughtered these Jews as he goes to Rome to get pronounced king. He goes to a foreign country, which is what the parable, parable that Jesus is sharing, goes to a far country. What happens? Well, they send 50 representatives from Jerusalem to go to Rome to say, don't let this man become king. There's this, there's this historical event revealed, uh, recorded for us by Josephus. It's in the history of, of the Jewish nation. This reality, he goes to be king and he sends these people who speak up to oppose him. So they're, they're very much, this would have happened about 30 years, about 4 BC, around right in BC to 80, right around in this time, this delegation has gone on. So about 30 years later, Jesus is using this historical reality for this parable. And it's the story of a king going off to become, to be coronated, to have his official coronation, who's then going to come back and set up his kingdom. Now, there's a real simple outline of this parable. And I've put it up on our, we're going to try to follow this outline up on the screens. There is the returning, the revealing, and the rewarding of the king and it will be received differently by the foes, the fake, and the faithful. The returning, the revealing, and the rewarding of the king will be received differently by foes, by the fake, and by the faithful. So first is this reality of the returning. This is important because of what he's walking into. He's going into Jerusalem. They think... He's going in to set up his kingdom. We get the triumphal entry. Comes up a little ahead of schedule. It's not Palm Sunday, but it's, this is where we are in Luke. The next is this triumphal entry. He's getting ready for this victory march into Jerusalem. That's what they think is going to happen. But the parable gives us a different timeline. They're going to go into Jerusalem. Jesus is going to secure his kingdom by his death on the cross. But then he's going to... For after he raises from the dead three days later, he's going to 40 days later ascend into heaven. He's going to go away for his coronation. Jesus, as the king in this parable, is going to go away for a time to receive his coronation. But they're not to be fooled by his absence. He's telling this parable to help them, to help us. To know that Jesus isn't surprised at the way this goes down. He's letting them know, here's what's going to happen. I know you think it's going to go this way, but here's what's really going to happen. The king is going to go away for a while to get his coronation. Then he is going to return. He's telling this parable to warn us against forgetting that he is king and he will be coming again. So there is this returning. The king has gone away, but he will return. And this returning leads to a revealing. It leads to a revealing. There's two different revealings. And the first revealing is the revealing of Jesus as king. You, you can't miss this revealing. Jesus is setting himself up. Though he just says, I'm going to be gone. Do not forget. My leaving is for my coronation to be king. I am king. And I will return as king and as Lord. When he goes away to get his coronation, he will get it. And he will come back as king and Lord over all. As Philippians 2, 10, 10 tells, us, tells us that on that day, 
There'll be no one left standing, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every knee on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether you want to or not, whether you think he is or not, at the returning, it will be revealed. And everyone will on heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's just describing for us. Everyone everywhere, no one's going to miss out on this, is going to bow the knee and every tongue is going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not all will be doing so with gladness necessarily, but everyone will be doing it. The question is not whether Jesus is your Lord or not. He is. Christ is King. He is the Creator of all things. We could go through many passages, looking at John 1 at Colossians 1, about the reality that through Him all things were created. And as the Creator of it all, He is the King of it all. He is your King. He is your Lord. The question is, do you recognize Him as such? Do you confess Him as your King? Everyone, everywhere, in Ringgold County and all through Iowa and the Chamar people in India, Jesus is king over all of creation. The question is not if he's king. It is that, is he recognized and worshipped as king? You know, there will be a returning and there will be a revealing. There will be a revealing on that day of the returning. Everyone will know Christ is the king that he says he was. The second revealing, though, is the character of those in the kingdom. Christ returns. It's revealed that, yes, he indeed was the king. And then the character of these three individuals, the three different classes of people, will be revealed. The response to the king is interesting. We see first the response of those who are the citizens of the kingdom. They hate him. The first response calling to ten of his servants, 14, but his, verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They have no desire to honor him as king and so they reject him. And these are clear and unapologetic unbelievers of the kingdom. We also have this category though of the slave or the servant, this, this slave in the parable. These are the ones who they found at least to be proclaiming a belief. There's two categories. There's the the one who just outright says they hate Christ, want nothing to do with Him. And this other category of those who at least confess a belief in the King. But we do find out that not all who confess allegiance to this King truly are His servants. There's a productivity difference between the servants for sure. And there's different responses that they give. But their core differences are in their views of the king. It's interesting you look at it. Verse 16, the first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. There's like this surprise. There's this excitement out of this servant that this gift... That he'd been given in a mina. He didn't deserve, he didn't earn it, but the, the king was gracious, gave him a mina. And so the servant says, your mina, the one that you gave to me, has produced. And the one that has the other mina that makes five. He says, the second comes in verse 18 saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. There's this understanding, he's made five minas. There's this understanding. They've been given something by the king and now look what the king has given. Look what... Well, look what it has done, what the king has given them. But this third servant, 
says another, and literally that's a, it's a, a very strong Greek term, one, a different one, a, a different one. And another one came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. I mean, listen to this description. It, it's t- when you read through it, you think, well, is, he, is Jesus sharing this because it's an accurate description? Because there's this confusion down in verse 22. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit. Is Jesus saying this guy's description is accurate? But it isn't. You can see the contradiction in his own description. He's saying, I know that you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Is that what the king has done? The king has graciously given minus to these servants. I mean, he hasn't taken what he didn't sow. He hasn't, re- or he hasn't reaped what he didn't sow. He didn't take what he did not deposit. He's a gracious king. They, they have totally different views of who this king is. The first two see him as the king who has bestowed graciously this gift upon him. And this third one sees him as a king who is harsh and, and one that is that he's just going to lay aside his, his, um, his coin, his mina, and just a handkerchief, basically a Kleenex. He's just going to take his mina, put it, and set it off to the side, kind of for his own keeping. So we see this returning. There's the revealing of the king and of his servants, and then there is the rewarding. After this revealing, they're all rewarded, and every one of them is rewarded. The unbeliever is rewarded with the fruit of their unbelief, of their rejection. Those who are true believers continue to receive the king's grace and that he takes their minas and turns them into cities. What does that mean in the parable? I don't know that it's all an allegory that we can necessarily say, okay, this is what we're going to rule over cities in the eternal state. I don't know. But but somehow God, what's being communicated is that his grace that has been received by the servants is going to be intensified, grown, made even greater. This initial grace is going to translate into even greater grace. They are rewarded. They've received His grace. God's grace has been given in the giving of the mina. They've been faithful with what they've been given. And then more grace is going to be poured out on them. They are rewarded. The joy of knowing, of serving, and of working for the king continues on into their future. They get to rule over cities. The rest doesn't go so well for them. These false believers, the the false believer that's specifically stated here, he has his mind taken from him and just given to the faithful. Even though even the grace that he even what had been given him at the start of the parable, even that is removed from him. And that leaves them with the out with the outright rejectors, this this false, this fake servant is put on the outside with the rest who are then, and it's a graphic word there. The reason why the ESV says slaughter them, it is a graphic word there. There's just no, we can flower it up. We can turn, we can turn hate into some sort of language of love, uh, but, but that, this is not playing tricks with the language. This is, there is a punishment. There is consequence. They have committed capital offense against the king by rejecting him, and they are punished for this behavior, for this rejection. 
So I have never understood the statement, uh, only God can judge me. And maybe you don't hear that much, I, you know, but there are people saying, you know, you can only God can judge me. And people say it often like, you don't get to judge me. You don't get to tell me what's right and what's wrong because only God can judge me. And I, and I want to give them a hearty amen. You're right. Yes, only God can judge you. But do you realize what terrifying news that is? Because he can and will judge you. Like, that's not good news. You should much rather have me judge you than God judge you because my standard is going to be much lower because I know what it's like to be a, a mess up. I know what it's like to be caught in sin. I know what it's like to be tempted and to give in. You would be much better off having me judge you than having the righteous, holy judge of the universe judge you because his standard is perfection. Be holy, therefore, as I am holy, he says. So, yeah, God, God, only God can judge you, and the reality is he will. And what side of this divide will you find yourself on? God will judge. This king, he will return. It will be revealed and his judgment and his justice will be dealt out. So the question we are left with is, who are we in this parable? Jesus is laying this out and this is, this is the scope of humanity. Who are you in this parable? The returning, revealing, and the rewarding of the king will be received by, differently by three types of people. The foes, the fake, and the faithful. What will he find upon his return? Will he find outright rejectors? Will he find false confessors? And will he find true believers? And when he comes to you, will he find an outright rejector? Will he find a false confessor? Will he find a true believer? Where do you fit? Where does the dividing line fall with you? It falls on how you view your king. How do you view this king? Has He has gone to receive his kingship and he is returning. Will he find you a believer, glad in his grace towards you? Do you have your eyes opened to this grace that has been given towards you, he'll find three types. Foes, fakes, and the faithful. It's first, this parable is a warning to foes. It is a warning. It warns unbelievers that your rebellion, that their rebellion will not last. The king is going to return and there will be a just penalty for those who reject him. There's no way around that I mean, the reason why Jesus uses severe language is so the guys like me can't get up here and pretend like he doesn't say really hard things. I can't, I can't ignore the word slaughter for those people that show up when he returns and have rejected him. It is severe, hard language. And so my, part of my responsibility in reading through Scripture and going through these things is to share the hard truths that Jesus himself spoke. There is justice for those who have rejected him at his appearing. And so, yes, the parable is a warning for those who would reject the king. That he will come, he will return, and there will be justice. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. There is re- uh, justice for the rebel against this king. However, if that is you this morning, which I kind of doubt you're sitting here on a Sunday morning, but let's just say maybe it is or you're listening to this. If that is you, the good news is it is not too late to turn from that rebellion. The good news is you're still here breathing, listening to this this morning. The door has not yet closed. The Hebrews will tell us that it is appointed for all men to die once, then comes the judgment. But you're not dead yet. Don't think... 
might be asleep, but you're still here. You're, you're, you're alive. You're living. You're here. So the chance is still here for you to repent of your rebellion and to trust in Christ. To confess yourself as a sinner. This king that's going to be returning, he came the first time. Why? To bear the punishment that you deserve upon the cross. The justice that's coming your way laid upon Christ on his cross so that everyone everywhere, repenting of their sins, trusting in Christ, trusting in this work on the cross, forgiven of their sins, so that when the king returns, they don't find themselves the rejectors, but they find themselves on the other side of the fence of the faithful. The punishment that will be dealt out to you if you reject Christ will be forgiven. If you trust in this king as your king, those are the foes. It's important to mention that. There also, though, is the fake. Parable is a warning to the fake. And this is the category of person who has taken on the the personage or the the, uh, sort of aura, the impression or the facade of a reputation as the servant of Christ. They mentioned it in, in the Sunday school class I was in this morning about nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity is the uh, nominal is nominous. It's taking the name of. You're Christian in name only. So if you were to check a survey that said different categories of religion, you might check Christian. But all you really mean by that is we don't really even know what. Do you really trust in this returning king who's coming back to judge the earth? Or do you just kind of, I live in a Christianized nation. I try to be a nice person. I try to go to church when I'm not busy with other things. I'm Christian. Are you Christian in name only? And there is a category of person who is the fake, the false servant. We don't really know why this individual is a false servant. Why did he bother taking the mina? Why was he even in this group? We don't really know. Is it peer pressure? Maybe his family was all going along in service to the king. So I'm going to go along in service to the king too because everybody else is doing it. Or maybe he thought it would be profitable. Well, I get a mina. So I guess I'm going to go ahead and join along with everyone else. Maybe everyone else in their family. We just we don't know, but we do know that the servant did not truly love this master. They dress themselves up as a believer in Christ, a believer in this king, but their heart is not in it. They go through the motions. They check the box. They attend church. They volunteer. They care for their families. In fact, they're so good, no one thinks anything other than this is a faithful servant. They've got it so well done on the outside. They get their mina. No one's questioning it. But the king shows up and we find out something different. Is that you this morning? Because I've got to warn you with what the parable warns you of. This servant who has on a veneer of, I love the king, but their heart is not is actually opposed to the king. They keep a veneer, they keep up a surface level of Christianity so as it fits their moment. But when the revealing comes, you find out their heart was not in love, did not love this king, did not see him as the gracious king that he is and rejected him. Is that you? Well, if so, the good news this morning is that you can be forgiven just as much as the full-on rebel if you repent and turn to this king and trust him. In the last application, so we have the, we have the foes, we have the fake, and now we have the faithful. It's the promise the king is going to return and there will be reward for those who are his. Though the king, those who are his, the, though the king has gone for a time for his coronation, this parable tells us that 
his going away was not a surprise. Like it was, he didn't, he's not shocked that this is going on. He, he knows exactly what he's doing in this march to Jerusalem. He's, he's testified to it three times specifically in the Gospel of Luke so far that we've looked at. I'm going to go and they're going to reject me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be given into the hands of men, he says. He knows what's coming. But he also knows going in, I'm going to go away for a while for my coronation. But don't forget and don't get stressed out. The reality is... I am returning. He knows it. He tells his disciples of it. And he does go away. He ascends into heaven at the ascension. 40 days after his resurrection. But don't forget, just as he knew he would go away, he is going to return. Those who have rejoiced in their mina, who have rejoiced in his grace given to them, who have trusted in the gospel, will rejoice and say, Look, Master, look what, you, look what you have given me. Look what it has produced in my life. Look what your mina has done. There's, there's not a real good consensus. You read the commentaries on what the mina is, but what's a tenfold return? I don't know, but I can imagine the conversation. If I were just thinking about this conversation going on, I can imagine what the conversation would go like, and I think it would go something like this. Master, look what your grace has done. Look what your grace has done. I trusted you through difficult times. Look what your mina has produced. I trusted you in the difficult times. I I remained faithful when I wanted to run away. Your grace, your mina gave me courage when I was terrified of what would happen when I took a stand to be faithful. Your mina, your grace, it strengthened me when I suffered through that illness. Your grace, your mina, what you have given has comforted me when I lost that one that I loved so deeply. Your grace, your master, it, your, your, your mina, master, what you have given me has produced abundantly all praise to you and to your gift. I want those words to be the words in my mouth on that day. And I want them to be the words in your mouth. It's on your tongue on that day. God, look what you have done. Look what you have done in the giving of grace and the giving of your son. So that me, the rebel, could now become a faithful servant. His grace has put us on the path toward Him. His grace will sustain us all the way there. And His grace will pour out an abundance of blessing when we get there. The King is returning. May we be found faithful at His appearing. Let's pray. Father, help us now in this place this morning. We desire to be the faithful those who have turned from their sinfulness, those who have turned from their selfishness, those who have turned from their fakeness. God, we do not want, I do not want a surface level love for you in this place. We are not looking for a veneer of Christianity. Father, we need reborn. We need the new birth. We need regeneration. We need awakening. God, I pray for awakening in this place that we would be found on that final day at your returning, the faithful who have truly been given your grace and look at what your grace has produced in our lives. God, do that work in our hearts now as only you can do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.